0: Hallowed be your name on earth as your name is holy in heaven. So bear that in mind. Your kingdom come on earth as your kingdom reigns in the heavenly realm. Your will be done on earth as uh, your will is done in the heavenly realm. So uh, we're just on the introduction of the first petition this week, but as you slowly go through the Lord's Prayer, uh, keep the whole of the Lord's Prayer in mind. And then remember, every petition of the Lord's Prayer that we pray is first God's Word. Before it becomes our prayer, it's God's Word and promise to us. He wants His name hallowed. He wants His kingdom to come. He wants His will to be done. He wants to provide us with daily bread, to forgive us our trespasses, to lead us not into temptation but to deliver us from the evil one. These are all sure and certain promises. So prayer is the voice of faith that rests upon those promises. So we're going to be singing this hymn more than once this year. And uh, perhaps like hymn 555, Salvation Unto Us Has Come, or Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, uh, 556, you can have your hand at learning it by heart. It's not hard August, is it? No. See, Take August's word for it. All right. Uh, this week, we continue... Uh, in the Bible narratives from the Old Testament, Jehu, the Avenger of Blood, the destruction of Ahab's house, and the prophets of Baal, Athaliah and Joash. Joash repairs the temple, and then finally the death of Elisha. So, in this third year of the Bible story readings in the Old Testament, there, there are a lot more obscure readings. Uh, for most Christians, are not as familiar with these. But um, they will lead you through to the captivities of Assyria and the Babylonian empires and then the return of the exiles. Uh, but we will be in the Old Testament a little while longer before shifting to Bible narratives on the Lord's Prayer. Finally, notice the verse for the week is 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter, not 1 Peter, but 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 21, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is in the second epistle of Peter that he speaks a lot about the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. In the context of this verse, when he speaks about holy men of God spoke as they were moved, he's especially extolling the Old Testament prophets. For our purposes, it would include both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles as being inspired by God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, that the the product of their pen in writing the sacred text was not their will, but they were inspired by the Spirit, the will of the Spirit. So holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice also the idea of speaking. Before the word of God was written, it was first spoken orally. And this goes all the way back to creation. God said, let there be light. That oral word was spoken before Moses, some centuries later, wrote it down. It doesn't negate the authority of the written word, not by any means. But the word that the Spirit carries along that enters the ear and the heart is a preached word. It is a spoken word. And then what we have in the Holy Scriptures is the authoritative witness from the prophets and the apostles to the truth of that that word. So, and why is it uh, a passage as we begin the Lord's Prayer? Because of the first petition Hallowed be thy name, God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven, but anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word, profanes the name of God among us, protect us from this heavenly Father. Okay, so it's kind of interesting, nice coincidence. This morning's verse for this week, the 2 Peter passage. And in the epistle this morning, we had also from 2 Peter uh, warning us about the scoffers of the latter days. And it's stunning to me how spot-on the description of Peter describing the end days, the last days, is to the times in which we live now. He wrote it in the first century, and here we are in the 21st century, 2,000 years later, and it is vivid and accurate in its description of what the church is going through now. And if one day is as 1,000 years, okay, it's only been about two days since our Lord rose from the dead. Okay? But the world, ha! Where's the promise of his coming? You, Christians, You're such duped idiots. Okay. We'll accept that. 1 Peter chapter 1. There's no new handout today. I'll be getting back to the handouts and especially when I get into the particulars of critical race theory and so forth. But we take it into 1 Peter chapter 1 after the baptismal doxology. And in verses 10 through the first three verses of chapter 2. So, from verse 10 of chapter 1 through verse 3 of chapter 2, Peter is especially extolling us in the sanctifying, faith-giving, hope-creating, comforting power Of the Word of God. Okay? Faith-creating, hope-giving, comforting power of the Word of God for us Christians in our earthly pilgrimage. Okay? Remember how the baptismal doxology ended that this salvation is absolutely secure in Christ, guaranteed in heaven. We may suffer, when we suffer it is God's will, that our faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, is refined by fire, so our faith is singularly focused in Christ. And the word of God is the source of that faith, it is the object of that faith, it is the creator of our hope, and it is the source of our comfort. So that's pretty important, okay, it's pretty important. It is why we can never just simply say, yeah, we know what the Word says there. No, Peter, in the St. Peter option, wants us more than anything else to meditate upon the Word of God. And this is what, when we get into these particular challenges of our age, whether it's LGBTQ theology or critical race theory or the paganism of um, global climate change and so forth, the temptation is to spend all of our time in the learning of those subjects and give short shrift to the Word of God. The more we are meditating upon the Word of God, the more there will be clarity in how to give an answer, a defense, a reason for the hope that lies within us. So it's just a a dangerous thing. It's, It's what... Luther says about the small catechism, these know-it-alls, and he's talking about the pastor, after one reading of the catechism, toss it aside, because they know all that. And he says, every day I become as a child, and I go back to the catechism, and I learn my ABCs. So what's interesting is how the challenges of the age in which we find ourselves in as Christians, the challenges to our faith, helps us to see, then, things in the Word of God that we didn't previously see. The example I've been giving you of, of late is over the course of the pandemic, it was a time in which I've reflected more intensely upon the necessity of gathering together. I mean, the pe- that people have been separated from one another has led to a, a, an astronomical rise in mental health problems, okay? In depression, in despair, as well as other, you know, ailments and physical health problems. In the church, the apostle in Hebrew says, do not forsake the assembling together. So, you know, we balance care for those who are particularly in need against the one thing needful is that we gather together as church. To receive the Lord's word and the Lord's sacrament. And then the role of singing. It is a depressing world without the church's song. So instead of less singing, we got to have more singing. Okay? Otherwise, it is uh, because the Lord commands it. You know, otherwise, we're burdened. So anyway, it's the times in which we find ourselves that help us sharpen our meditation upon the scriptures. So, at verse 10 of chapter 1, remember the salvation is reserved in heaven for you. That's how verse 9 ends, the salvation of your souls, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's absolutely guaranteed in Christ, protected in the heavenly realms. Of this salvation in Christ, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. So this is an example of what I was just talking about. Through the things that they suffered, and there's not a prophet in the Old Testament that didn't suffer. Some form of persecution, whether from the unbelieving hordes or from the children of Israel themselves, the Old Testament church, or in the case of so many like Moses and Elijah, they had times of internal suffering with their weaknesses of their own flesh. So, that kind of suffering drove them back into the scriptures. Now, you might find it strange that the prophets who wrote the scriptures would be driven back into the scriptures. Can anybody explain that to me? If they wrote the scriptures, how is it that they're driven back into the scriptures? Amy? It wasn't their word it had to go back to God's word? Okay. Can, can you add to or help Amy out further? Susan is behind you. Are you. Do you have your Phil Donahue microphone? The alien word is what comes not from you, but the people who wrote the scriptures were dependent on the people before them who wrote the scriptures, and they went back to what was older. Okay, the, the, the people who wrote the scriptures were dependent upon those who wrote before them and preached before them. Okay, Wallace over here. Do you become a scoffer as you stay away from the Word of God by doing, or feeling that you're doing your own interpretation? Wally's picking up on the, uh, can you say that again? Uh, can you be? Oops. Can, can you become a scoffer when you stay away from the word and you decide to make your own interpretation of the word rather than going back to it? And it's- absolutely, absolutely. Scoffing at the word of God and the promises of God is a byproduct of neglect of the word of God. That's why uh, here again. If the Word of God, which creates faith in Christ and gives us Jesus, is the one thing needful, what do we gain by staying away from opportunities to hear the Word, to study the Word, to be catechized in the Word? We put faith in jeopardy. We also put how the congregation supports people. Your being here today is of help to those who are here with you. Everybody comes with different baggage and so forth, but it's extremely encouraging that you're here, Okay? And we're here even for those who are not here as we pray for them and so forth. Now let's go back to this thing. I brought up oral, the oral word at the beginning in connection with the 2 Peter passage. Prophecy, no prophecy, uh, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who is the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament? The Moses, according to God, Moses is the man. He wrote the first five books of Moses centuries after the events that he is reporting on. Was there no word before Moses wrote? Absolutely not. God's word spoken at creation, God's word spoken to Adam and Eve, God's word spoken to the great patriarchs in that genealogy of death, I call it, Genesis 5, these guys that lived seven, eight, nine hundred years, but they didn't suffer from dementia at the end of those eight hundred years or nine hundred. Can you imagine having someone who knew the promises made to Adam and Eve of the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent's head living and hearing that in the passing down of the oral tradition up to the time of the ark? But if you look at the genealogies and you run the numbers out, there were people that would have come butted right up against to Adam and Eve and those first promises that then were there, uh, Wally scoffing at Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, while building the ark. But the word was there. And then the patriarchs, Abraham is called, Isaac is called, Jacob is called, Is there any Bible yet? No Bible, but there is the Word of God. In you, Abraham, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And then the 12 sons of Jacob. And then there's 400 years of bondage in Egypt. What is it that kept faith alive through 400 years of slavery in Egypt? The Word of God. But it wasn't written down yet. Ah, but it was shared orally. Now, it needed to be written down. And so Moses is called, in part, not only to be redeemer of Israel, but to write the Torah. And those five books of Moses are foundational. The Torah, the Pentateuch. And in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet must agree with Moses okay, in order to be... Accept it. If he doesn't agree with Moses, don't pay any attention to him. So if he doesn't agree with the small catechism, ignore him. He's a false prophet. Okay? So when in Peter he says, of the salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, every Old Testament prophet searched Moses out. After Moses... Those prophets who wrote, the latter prophets searched out Moses and the Psalms and the former prophets who came before them. So there is always this kind of handing off of the baton with eyes looking back. If you don't pay attention to what was formerly written, you are in danger as you move into the future, for there's nothing new under the sun. Okay? So the promise of salvation in Christ made in Genesis 3.15 continued to be reported and reported and be illuminated by every subsequent prophet. But every existing prophet, like Elisha, studied Moses and Elijah and the prophets who went before him. Okay? That's a very important thing. So of the salvation in Christ... The prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Now this says something else about how we are to view Scripture. So how are we to view Scripture on the basis of what the prophets did? They were inquiring and the searching of the Scriptures concerning this salvation in Christ. You see, so what is their focus, Pat? Uh, well, certainly the, the, the word was confirmed. Yeah. What is their purpose in searching the scriptures and then in writing? Let me, do I need to say it a different way, with a different interrogative pronoun? Who is the subject of the search? Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now, I can't overemphasize this enough. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. The focus of the inquiry and study and meditation of the prophets was to see the Christ. Why is this important? It is important because we suffer from this thing in the the world today as a church. Yeah, 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 we know all about Jesus. What are we going to do about critical race theory? Yeah, we know all about this. But what are we going to do about global warming? We know all about this. But what are we going to do about this? Forget about that. Our focus of faith is Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pay attention to that. But the the prophets, through everything that they suffered, including widespread unbelief and rejection of the faith of Israel, Those prophets like Daniel and what have you and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego continued to worship the silliness or the foolishness of the cross. The foolishness of the cross, which is what it is to the world. If you ever are waiting for the day in which Christianity will be be viewed by the world as being reasonable and wonderful and attractive don't bother, don't bother. <laughs> because we worship the crucified God who rose from the dead the third day and their salvation and no one else and with that we disdain every human attempt to build utopia is it not true that the ideologies and so forth that are out there in the world which are anti-christian Is it not true that they are all utopian ideas and theologies? And what's so amazing is they're promising utopia, but they promote their ideologies and theologies with bitterness and anger and disdain. Okay? Let us not follow in their train. But the prophets inquired and searched and meditated that they might see Christ rightly. So, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And that's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, uh, excuse me, uh, verse uh, 11. (laughs) Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Notice the pattern the searching of the scriptures by the prophets was done according to the spirit of Christ that was in them. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit's job, who inspired the scriptures, what is his job? Those of you who have been to Didache, he has one job. To testify of Christ. Testify of Christ. He's always shining the light on Christ. So the holy prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit were carried along by the spirit of Christ. Christ, the Spirit's work, is to testify to Christ. That was what they did. Who was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And that becomes the pattern. The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. I submit to you that in the Old Testament, the suffering that Daniel went through or Jeremiah went through were the sufferings of Christ... Reaching back in time to which he, as a believing prophet, was joined. Okay? So, the cross of Christ sits at the center of human history and becomes the paradigm by which we interpret all of it. All the way back in time and forward in time. And the church, as the body of Christ, is joined to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the progression is always... The Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Suffering and then glory, death, and then resurrection. So if you wonder why do we suffer now, it's because we're the body of Christ. And we're joined to the death of Christ. But then that also means we are joined to and await the resurrection, with Christ from the dead. This is what Peter and John then did in Acts chapter four. Right after Pentecost, they were beaten. They were ordered by the Sanhedrin not to preach in the name of Jesus. And instead of going home sulking, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And their suffering for preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified, was a sign that they belonged to Christ and that they were being faithful. So that, that means we, we have, to, as it's gonna come later on in uh, chapter two, about not rejoicing when you suffer for doing wrong. <laughs> you know, if, if, you, if you drive your car through the windows of an abortion clinic and then you're arrested, do not you dare claim that you're suffering for Jesus' sake. No, you're suffering for doing wrong when you're arrested and incarcerated and thrown in jail I'm talking about the suffering for Jesus sake which is suffering for the sake of his gospel and for you, you, you follow the laws of the land to the best of your ability in every way as long as you're not denying Christ so but Peter and John in their case they gave witness of how significant it was and how glad they were to have suffered these things there, Cross was sacramental in character because the promise of Christ was with them in their suffering. Okay. To them, verse 12, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. This is a lovely verse because it talks about how what was written and chronicled by the prophets of old not only testified to the grace of God in Christ at that time, but was written for our benefit today. That's why I would advise preachers to spend more time using examples from the scriptural narrative rather than from contemporary life. Not that they can never be used, but, um, you know, as we mentioned this morning at the first service, the widow of Zarephath, who cared for Elijah, the Shunammite woman who cared for Elisha and had the study built for him, uh, the Philippian jailer who bound up the wounds of uh, Paul and Silas. All of these kinds of examples are of how the comforting gospel of salvation in Christ moved them to reach out in love and care in the works of mercy for the least of Jesus' brethren. So the the point here is what was written in the past was written for our learning today. So you're going back to the um, Old Testament and some of these stories that I mentioned that we are having now, which are not so familiar to many of us. Maybe they ought to become familiar, because it's in these stories that we are encouraged. When we see in those stories the things that we're suffering with today. Um, some of the academy kids, as I'm going through the story and interrupting the reading to try to explain, they're getting the point, and there were a number of times this past week where laughter is appropriate response, especially when you see how God is dealing with his enemies. And so to see a first or second grader getting the joke that's in the Bible uh, is a good thing. All right. Angels desire to look into before leaving this particular point. Let me explain what this does not mean. Angels desire to look into something as if jeepers. We never realized that before. That's not the point. The angels themselves are privy to God's plan of salvation. But they want to see it. And they want to sing of it. And they want to lead in the rejoicing and praise of it. There's a difference between that and being you know, a, a complete mystery to them. Okay? So the angels of God know the mystery of salvation and they want to celebrate it. What is it akin to? It is akin to you knowing, what shall we say? You know the, uh, let's pick out Handel's Messiah or something that you love and you know the choir that does it and the orchestra that does it is absolutely fantastic. You know Messiah, you know their work and you desire to hear it. You don't say, you know, I've heard it before, I don't need to hear it again. I know what it's all about, forget it. It it parallels what I said before about saying, yeah, we know the gospel. Let's get on to something more important. No, there is nothing more important. And that's the perspective of the angels. They desire to just rejoice over it. It's sort of like you with your children or your grandchildren. You desire to simply bask in their accomplishments, what they're doing. So the angels of God... Desire nothing more than to always behold the face of their Father. Matthew 18, we have this, the Saint Michael and all angels. And the face of the Father is what he is doing when he smiles on us for Jesus' sake. That's what this passage is about. Yes, sir? So it's kind of like your children when they want to read a story over and over again or listen to a certain song. Absolutely. We should be more like our children. We should be more like the children and not get bored with that story because wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, uh, great comfort and strength and insight will come to us. Pastor? About the word angels, is it possible to even look at this as understanding just messengers? Like the Old Testament speaks of angels as the heavenly beings, but there's also the earthly messengers who speak That is that. Yeah, well, I think the primary referent here is angelic beings however your point is absolutely well taken if the angels of god who are messengers long to explore and look into and rejoice and gaze upon these mysteries how much more should we who like in the office of the ministry, are called to be angels today uh, long to do the same verse 13 therefore so here the therefore in the english Corresponds with another word in the Greek. On the basis of this foundation, what he has just talked about, concerning the significance of the prophetic scriptures. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance... But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, notice how he uses similar um, militaristic uniform language that the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians 6. We had that epistle uh, just a couple of weeks ago about the armor you know, the breastplate of righteousness and so forth. So here he says, gird up the loins of your mind. It's an interesting concept because the loins are here that protect, you know, the area surrounding the vital organs. The loins of your mind? That's kind of like a mixed metaphor, isn't it? But in the church's liturgy, you have for example, in marriage, the union of uh, heart, body, and mind, speaking of the Christian couple, the union of heart, the heart is the place of, what do we say so often? Faith, okay? So unity of faith causes there to be Unity of thought, thought of mind, how we, how we view life, how we think of things, okay? How many of you have found yourself in a situation where, Kent, where are you? You know, it's like, I'm on another planet. This is an alien world. You know, what, you're, what gender are you identifying with today, by the way? Oh, you're still a man. man You've you got to come to the party, okay? You know, it's just, but, but what we believe shapes how the mind thinks and perceives reality. Faith is the foundation. Faith in Christ is the foundation. It shapes how we then think. Um, Francis Schaeffer had this book, How Shall We Then Live? And it's kind of the thesis of it based on our faith. How do we live? So from unity of heart to unity of mind and then unity of body. So in the marriage, You know, you celebrate your faith and then how you think in the coming together as one flesh in the marital union. But this is also reflected in the church who out of our faith, it shapes the way in which we think. So I can talk to you because you are all catechized, baptized, faithful Lutheran believers who come here. You have a language and a vocabulary that allows you to, for, for us to converse and move forward in our understanding, I'd have to speak very differently to those who have no such frame of reference. Okay? But we celebrate, then, this unity of heart, mind, and then body, ultimately in the Lord's Supper, which is, has something to do with, with fellowship. Okay? So uh, in the text here, gird up the loins of your mind, The only way in which the mind is guarded from the assaults upon the mind, Kent, that you are experiencing the workplace is by the word of God and particularly the gospel of Christ. So you're not all at didache, but Kent has been uh, making connections with what's happening in the workplace with what we're hearing about, what it is to be made in the image of God and what the gospel does for us. And this is precisely it. the mind, the, the loins of the mind, here, are, the mind is protected by the word of the gospel that not only fortifies faith, but actually teaches us how to think rightly. Now, Paul Wehrman in the corner had a, had a question. That's my understanding that in 1527, the plague struck Wittenberg. Uh, different reactions some people... Uh, left uh, head for the hills, uh, so to speak, uh, Luther uh, reacted differently. I understand he took the sick uh, into his home. Uh, he did. Many, many people. So uh, about the people that took off, uh, did they succumb to an assault on, on their mind? Did no. they leave because of doubt or unbelief? No, uh, no. Uh, Luther is very, um, he's very compassionate toward them. It's a difference in office, Paul. Okay. So if I can't do the job of the office of the ministry, then I have to resign the office and let someone else do it. But my office is different than your office. Okay, simply as a critic. You have not been called and ordained to this office. So, for example, um, it is the job of the lieutenant to take his troops into battle wherever the war is being fought. It's not the job of Grandma Schmidt back home to get on a B-52 bomber or something. No, it would be be a transport, right, and go there with her walking stick. It's not her job. Okay? Do you follow? So a chaplain in the military doesn't have an option. Do I bring the word and sacrament to the troops? Oh, I can't do that. Some harm might come to me. Well, what does that have to do with anything? That's your job. That's your calling. So there is—it's very important. We live in a day and age in which office is unimportant, and it's very important, and Christians need to hold that up. So Luther wasn't critical of the people who left. He wasn't particularly critical, right. But he stayed because he was a minister. He stayed because he was a minister, and he cared for those who were left behind. Not in the uh, American evangelical left behind sense, okay? Okay. Okay, good. Come back to the text here now. So verse 14 says, so uh, the hope fully upon the grace. Our hope, this is uh, picking up on the doxology in the verses 3 through 9. Our hope is in Christ. That means it's a sure and certain hope. It's in the grace of God in Christ. It's not a hope that if only so-and-so wins the next election. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is in the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. So your hope fully, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children. Now, Peter uses, as does the apostle in Hebrews, obedience as a synonym for faith. And he does that in part because, you know, you know the, the Lutheran, Um, Question, why did the chicken cross the road? What do we say? To get to the other side. All right, right. But, But there's a caveat there. Why do you cross the road? Because you can believe you can get to the other side. If you didn't believe you could get to the other side, would you cross the road? No. So obedience flows from faith, from what you believe. Okay. So if, you're, if you know that you're doing God's work, what he has called you to do, and you know that with certainty on the basis of the word of God, according to your office, Paul, if you know you're doing the Lord's work and you trust in that, then you are the loins of your mind are girded, and you're able to engage in that kind of the obedience of faith. That is to say, you trust, and out of faith there comes Action and faith obedience. Forms. Obedience in the Greek is under hearing. The akouo is for, its hearing is very much a part of obedience that's or a, for faith. Yeah, so that's, faith. A, that's a fantastic uh, word. The same thing is in the Old Testament. Uh, so much of the obedience in the Old Testament is actually this exact same thing in the, the hearing. So those who hear are obedient. Those who don't hear are disobedient. Which, which underscores the relationship of faith to the works of faithfulness. And the only thing that can create faith, here again, is the word of God. So as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. Now, lust is not simply sexual desire, but lust is to desire anything which is contrary to the gospel. Contrary to the word of God. Which is what everybody does who is not a Christian. So the temptation for us that Peter wants to guard us against is following the appetites and desires of the flesh for control, for coercion. What is not natural to us is to let things run their course and to only do what God has given us to do, even if it appears as if we're going to lose. So be it. But no Christian martyr ever lost, even though their lives were taken from them not when they died in the faith. Okay. So, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts is in your ignorance, but as he who called you in is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, "Be holy, for I am holy." Now, this is what we close with today. Holiness. Holiness always has to do with living in the Word of God. So to accept, Steve, that you're a man and to live and believe as a man what God calls you a man is, that's holy. To be a husband as God calls you to be a husband, that is a holy life. Quite apart from whether Joanne receives that or accepts it or believes, it doesn't change the reality. Holiness, Luther says this, the word of God is the only holy thing that we have. So holy lives are not simply forgiven lives, although they are, but holy lives is when you live your life the way God intended you to live it, with faith in Christ and love to the neighbor. Furthermore, when he says, be holy, that is absolution language. Be holy. In your baptism, he gives you that status and also that calling. The status of being holy and the calling to live according to the word of God in your particular vocation in life. Okay? Now, we're right in the middle of this discussion of the preeminence of the Word of God. We'll continue that next week, and we'll be bringing it into verse uh, 3 of chapter 2. Okay, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.